It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! It was 8.30 exactly. I was looking down at a little sprig of mahonia growing out of the turf, its oxblood leaves like buffed pigskin. I glanced up, and then I saw my goshawks. There they were, a pair, soaring above the canopy in the rapidly warming air. There was a flat, hot hand of sun on the back of my neck, but I smelt ice in my nose seeing those goshawks soaring. I smelt ice and bracken stems and pine resin. Goshawk cocktail. They were on the saw. Goshawks in the air are a complicated grey colour. Not slate grey nor pigeon grey, but a kind of rain cloud grey. And despite their distance, I could see the big powder puff of white undertail feathers fanned out, with the thick blunt tail behind it and that superb blend and curve of the second areas of a soaring goshawk that makes them utterly unlike sparrowhawks. And they were being mobbed by crows, and they just didn't care, like, whatever. A crow barreled down on the male, and he sort of raised one wing and let the crow past. The crow was not stupid, and he didn't dip below the hawk for long. These goshawks weren't fully displaying. There was none of the skydiving I'd read about in books but they were loving the space between each other and carving it into all sorts of beautiful concentric chords and distances. A couple of flaps and the male, the tearsel, would be above the female and then he'd drift north of her and then slip down fast like a knife cut, a smooth calligraphic scrawl underneath her and she'd dip a wing and then they'd soar up again. 
They were above a stand of pines, right there, and then they were gone. One minute my pair of goshawks was describing lines from physics textbooks in the sky, and then nothing at all. I don't remember looking down or away. Perhaps I blinked. Perhaps it was as simple as that. And in that tiny black gap which the brain disguises, they dived into the wood. That was an extract from H is for Hawk, a poignant memoir of living with and training a goshawk by Helen MacDonald. And Helen is the very special guest on this episode of the podcast, the nature podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine. So Itches for Hawk was a masterpiece of nature writing and was particularly loved for how it dealt with issues of family and grief. But now Helen has a new book out called Vespa Flights, a collection of short essays about human relationships with the natural world. And we'll be enjoying a reading from it later on, again by Hannah Tribe. But now sit back and enjoy a delightful and wide-ranging conversation between Helen and our very own Maria Hodson. Hello, Helen. Thanks very much for joining us today. It's great to talk to you. Oh, it's such a treat. It's so great to be here. Thank you. My first question will be about you. You're an award-winning author, naturalist and presenter, but can you tell us a little bit about your connection to the countryside and how and when you first became interested in nature and to what extent it has informed your life? Oh, it's informed everything. I was an absolutely irredeemable nature nerd when I was a kid. I grew up in Camberley in Surrey in a very strange place, actually. It was a a sort of ex-country estate owned by the Theosophical Society, which was a sort of 19th century spiritualist society. And my parents were kind of hard-bitten atheist journalists. We bought a house there. And um, I just ran, I ran riot across this place. I was this tiny kid and it was all walled and very safe. And it was acres and acres of Italianate gardens and meadows and forests. And I was quite a loner as a kid. So I used to go out and spend so much time just, you know, stuffing my face, you know, under rocks, looking for bugs and wading around ponds, trying to catch newts. I used to bring grass snakes home occasionally. My parents would be like, Helen, not another grass snake. And I just, and it was funny, you know, we we so often think of nature as something which is, you know, we set ourselves against or we compare ourselves to it or we have to identify it. You know, to me, when I was a kid, you know, all the animals and creatures and plants I met were kind of like school friends. I needed to know their names. So I became really obsessed with field guides and I still have a whole bunch of field guides in my loo. If anyone comes to visit me, they'll be sort of looking at, you know, birds of New Zealand and spiders of Britain and Europe. So it's always been there. It's always been part of who I am. And um, I'm really thankful for it. And was that an interest that you sort of evolved yourself? or Did your parents have a hand in introducing you to that and, and talking you through the different species and so on? Not really. My my dad was a, an aeroplane nut. Um, when he was small, he used to go um, plane spotting. And I remember finding his, his plane spotting diaries from when he was a teenager. You know, he used to sort of cycle to local aerodromes on his bicycle with a bottle of Tizer and egg sandwiches. And I remember looking at them and it was, you know, it was like nine hours of staring at the sky, you know. So even though he wasn't into animals, he really understood that impulse. And he really, in particular, my dad encouraged me. And you know, the fact that they put up with me bringing home bits of dead animals I found and eggshells and, you know, and, um, and and sometimes I'd rescue baby birds. A couple of times I'm really sad to confess, I don't think they needed rescuing, but that's that's what I was like when I was a kid. So the house was always full of like animals that I was rearing and there was kind of bird poo all over the floor in my bedroom and they were just so patient and generous with me. So I'm I'm never going to, you know, stop thanking them for that. And yet you went on to study English, I think, as your undergraduate degree, didn't yeah. you? And then came yeah. back round to the history of science later on. So so can you talk to me about that course as well? 
Yes. Well, it's 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 quite, it's faintly embarrassing, really. I really wanted to be a, a naturalist. I wanted to be a biologist since I was tiny. You know, later I realised that what I wanted to be was a kind of a 19th century naturalist. I wanted to sort of travel the world looking for animals and birds and plants and realised that to do that, you needed to be richer than God. And, all, and um, also, that's not what biology was, you know, in the 1980s and 70s. It was, you know, you needed mathematics. And I, I can barely add up a list of figures. So I decided that, you know, my other love was literature. So I studied literature at Cambridge, uh, which was very strange for me. I was the state school kid. It was all a very weird environment for me to get suddenly find myself in. And then after my English degree, I went to um, work in falcon conservation based in Wales and the United Arab Emirates, particularly on falcon species used or affected by Arab falconry. It's a huge cultural phenomenon over there, and there are a few significant problems associated with it. And I kept seeing all these Western-led conservation initiatives kind of failing because no one seemed to take into account the really important cultural place of these animals. You know, And I thought to myself, I want to study why people value animals the way they do. Where can I do that? And I realized that history and philosophy of science was a really good place to do that. So I went back to university and I studied history and philosophy of science and lots of it. You know, I wrote papers on bird watching in World War II and the philosophical kind of underpinnings of the species concept. Like I was like a dolphin sporting in the waves. It was really exciting. And I think it's one of the most important questions we have now. And, you know, in, in this current kind of emergency, really, this biodiversity loss and climate emergency is why do we value some species and landscapes the way we do? Why do we not value others? You know, you can't you can't fight to save anything unless you love it. And you can't love anything unless you know it. Um, and trying to understand why we know the things we do in the way we do, I think, is crucial. Absolutely. Well, I'm still an academic there. You can hear me doing my academic talk, <laughs> even though I'm no longer in the academy. <laughs> It's wonderful. And you have that great combination because of the literature background and the naturalist background. It's a wonderful combination because it allows you to communicate really passionately and fluently about these things, which is so important in terms of engaging people. Well, that, that's what that's what happened. Just to sort of, I'm sorry to sort of butt in. I'm, I'm full of coffee and I'm very excited about talking to you. But so what happened was I started a PhD and I, I started to sort of realise that all these amazing concepts and things I was finding in the archives and, and the things I was working with, they were never really going to leave the academy. They were going to be circulated amongst a really small group of people. And I thought, this stuff is really fascinating. I want to give it to everyone. So that was really one of the great impulses for me to start writing books rather than continuing to be an academic. Of course, yes. Well, I will get on to um, your books in one moment. I just want to touch um, on the documentary, the BBC documentary you recently presented, The Hidden Wilds of the Motorway, which um, examines how nature survives alongside Britain's most unloved motorway, the M25, which transports huge amounts of traffic for the past 35 years, I think. So this is a less than glamorous landscape. What appealed to you about making this particular documentary? (laughs) I confess that there were a few times, you know, I was really excited about this documentary and then, you know, it was sort of 6am and I'm in a travel lodge by the motorway and it's freezing cold, it's February and when we get out there, I'm standing right by six lanes of traffic and I'm thinking, why, why am I doing this? I think I think it's lots of reasons. I think I'm really interested in the way we, th- we think about the countryside. We always think of it as being these kind of remote, beautiful places that we have to travel to visit. And I think there's a lot of exclusivity in that. You know, if you're from a marginal community or you don't have much financial clout, it's hard to travel to those places. 
And I wanted to kind of see whether there was whether there were this nature in spaces that were far closer to home, that were more accessible or surprising. And it wasn't really a, a story about how great the M25 is as a motorway. It's quite a grim place in, in many ways, and it's obviously caused a lot of environmental damage. But there are these magical spaces near it where um, the natural world is, even if it's not thriving, it's, it's adapting. And I thought that was kind of quite a hopeful message. I think it's not that we need privilege adapting over fixing problems, but I think it's still a little bit of sign of hope that it's working there. And I think one of the things that I really love was there's a bridge over the M25 in Epping Forest where, you know, deer cross the motorway. And I imagine driving at dusk under these you know, looking up and seeing these antlers crossing overhead. And just I just think it's the most beautiful image for a world in which we all live together, really. It's nice that you've mentioned about the element of hope, because I noticed, well, I, I should say, I sense a quiet optimism in your work about humans not being entirely a destructive force in relation to nature. In H's for Hawk, you write of God's Hawks, their existence gives the lie to the thought that the wild is always something untouched by human hands and hearts. The wild can be human work. And equally in the hidden wilds of the motorway, you show us how even our seemingly ugly works can create nature-rich edgelands and exotic fusions of wild and artificial. So what is your view of the relationship between humans and nature? Well, have you got seven hours we could go through this bit by bit in a sort of 25,000 part uh, answer? Um, okay, so there's a lot of things to say there, one of which is that I think we are very inclined now to think of nature as something that we can't touch or interact. It's something that's uh, rare and frighteningly damaged and it's kind of like a behind a, a plate glass screen. And the problem with that is it encourages us to not know what's there. People are often talking about how social media and iPhones and you know various sort of other contraptions are taking us away from the natural world. And I look on the internet and I look at Twitter, for example, where lots of budding amateur naturalists are taking photographs of plants and fungi and creatures and insects that they've found and they don't know what they are and they share the pictures and experts leap in and there are these wonderful conversations that are encouraging knowledge and the sharing of kind of expertise. That's a kind of an occasion for hope with me. I think we do need that contact and we don't need to have the kind of contact again that requires us to sort of strike out into deserts and mountains. I'm not a brilliant house person, I'm, I'm not very tidy and the other day I looked up and over the top of my cooker there's a female spider with an egg sack, she's been sort of guarding it. And I thought to myself, you know what, just looking at that spider and trying to imagine what the world is like for her, that's a kind of imaginative leap that I think is what we need the wild for. It doesn't just involve us learning to love it, to preserve it. It also involves us reflecting on what we are and what our responsibilities are. There's an amazing book by the American botanist um, Robin Wall Kimmerer called Braiding Sweet Grass. And she asks this astonishing question in it. What would it feel like if you believe the earth loved you back? And I think that's one of those questions that, you know, I, I quite often say that to people because we're so, again, convinced that we are only ever a destructive presence. And sometimes it's quite nice to feel that maybe we, there's a more of a reciprocal love between us. Oh, I'm standing quite Californian and new age now, but I really hope that we can find that wellspring in us and it, it take us forward. That's lovely. I completely agree. And I also am not a very tidy person myself. So it's it's nice to know 
<laughs> but we can encourage wildness in our own homes. <laughs> I just want to stop to talk about clothes moths for a second. So, you know, I, I do confess that despite uh, having an overwhelming love for the natural world, I am in a constant battle against clothes moths in my walls currently. There are little smudges all over them where I run around squashing them. So, yeah, it's, um, it's those species, I'm afraid, they're dead to me. I, I can't be doing with clothes moths. <laughs> Um, the Hidden Wilds of the Motorway, you describe yourself as a nerdy naturalist. So how true is this? And do you think nature has influenced your character? Yes. I was looking at Facebook this morning and realised that I belong to a group called Bark Flies of Britain. <laughs> and um, there was a discussion about a really interesting bark fly. I mean, they're, they're not very big and they're not very colourful. And there was lots of Latin names being thrown backwards and forwards. And I stared at this and it was like this moment of horror. It's like, yep, I am really, 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 really nerdy. <laughs> um, so look, here's, here's the thing about the natural world. You know, you can look out at it and it can be this beautiful green blur. Um, or you can look at it and see and try and see the astonishing complexity and diversity of what's there. And I think the problem with the first one is, if you look at nature as a kind of big scenic landscape, you forget to see what's missing. You know, a piece of farmland can look pretty much the same as it did 100 years ago, but if you look a little bit closer, the species that there are gone. So I definitely feel that specificity and um, attention to identification of the natural world, that kind of deep geekery, that deep nerdery that I flourish in, is a very important part of who I am. Um, I think paying attention to what's there is absolutely crucial. Um, you know, I think I'm, I mean, I think I'm definitely also fairly on the spectrum. It's definitely the case that I, you know, have been known when I was a kid to pick up the Oxford English Dictionary and read entries for fun. So, I mean, that's part of who I am. I think, I think the two, the two sides kind of feed into one another. It's just, yeah, they're both one thing really. In HS4 Hawk, you mentioned that you were quite a shy child, um, able to disappear. And yet now you're someone who has, you know, who can present on television and who gives talks. And do you think that your passion for the natural world has actually helped overcome any original shyness? Um, or is it something that you have to constantly work to overcome? That's a really good question. Yeah. And uh, I think the, my first book, The Ages for Hawk, um, coming out made a big difference with that. Partly because I kept meeting people, meeting readers who shared um, that deep joy in the natural world. And, you know, when you're a sort of small naturalist, you, you, you tend to feel you're the only person that feels that way. When you're, when you're a child, you always feel like you're unique, don't you? <laughs> and you grow up and you realise you're really not. But also because the, the, the subject of that book was grief. I lost my father. And as you, you know, many listeners might know, I, I decided to deal with that grief by training a hawk. It's not something I recommend. I met many readers who'd suffered griefs and losses of their own. And they talked to me about those. And it was that sort of astonishing realisation that not only do we share certain kinds of joy as humans, but we all go through very, very dark times and we all have suffered terrible losses that grieve and wound us. And I think that also made me realise that, you know, um, we are all in it together and it made me love people a lot more. I'm quite an introvert, but I began to realise that people aren't as scary as I thought. And I really love people now. I've become, yeah, I've become much more extroverted. I mean, I still don't go to parties. They're terrifying, but, you know, in every other way... <laughs> 
that's actually what I was about to ask you next, because um, Nature's for Hawk had an enormous impact, and not just as a deeply beautiful piece of nature writing, but also as a memoir of grief following the loss of your father. And actually, I went to see you speak in Bristol um, at the Festival Ideas a few years ago, and I was struck by the number of people who wanted to share with you their own bereavements and how powerfully the book had resonated with them. Yeah. And it was it was wonderful to see, but I also remember thinking uh, how it must be quite a responsibility to hold the weight of that gratitude and those emotions. And did you ever find that overwhelming? To start with, I did. Um, and then I realised that it wasn't about me in any way. All that happened with that book was it seemed to open up a space in which things could be said that weren't often permitted to be said out loud by other people. And I began to find myself, you know, in, in sort of in, a, in queues after book signings, people would sort of stop and tell me of things that had happened to them that were, you know, sad or heartbreaking. And I guess I began to sort of realise how vicars and priests do it really you have to you listen and you pay the deepest attention but you don't have to hold all that it's not yours to hold you just need to listen very carefully but I mean it's changed me it's changed me hearing all those stories and um you know it's as I say it's made me made me love love people in the world more I remember a, a man in America once who thanked me because he said that my book had told him that it was okay to go a bit mad after you lost someone you loved and I thought to myself, my goodness, you know, of course you go a bit, you know, you lose track of who you are and what the world is. And that was a really astonishing moment. Yeah, really humbling. I mean, I know that word is really un- overused, but I, it's really humbling. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah, I can. I, it was it was humbling to be in the room when, when I was listening to these, uh, you know, personal testimonies. I remember yeah. that event very, very vividly. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And I suppose going back to what we were talking about much earlier on in the conversation, that again is a reflection of your your power of communication and then allowing people to really connect emotionally as well, rather than um, nature being dry and academic. It's the, the marriage of the two, which allows people to feel that it is also speaking to them in some way and that they can also interact with it and be part of it and, treasure it hopefully. I loved those books when I was a kid where some expert would sort of take you out in the book and explain to you what nature was and what it meant and I always that that kind of very authoritative dry voice is something you're always working with and against if you write about nature it's you sort of fall into it but what I try and do I think is to sort of when things interest me or fascinate me or puzzle me in the natural world when I write about them I really feel like I want to bring the reader along with me and say look at this isn't this astonishing should we find out about it together? I mean, it sounds a bit like a children's TV programme when I say it like that, but it's all about sharing rather than telling, I think, and that's what I try and do. 20 feet away, a point of intense light winks into existence. Over there, another, and another. Tiny motes of cold fire mapping a sparse star field over the ground. I walk up to one kneel and peer carefully into the otherworldly brilliance. It comes from the tail end of a small, elongated, wingless beetle, clutching a hold of a stem of grass and waving its abdomen in the air. It and the lights around me are glowworms, Lampyris noctiluca, things both sublime and ridiculous, half imitations of remote stellar distance and half wagging beetle bums. Only female glowworms shine like this. 
They can't eat, drink, or fly, but spend their days burrowed deep in stems and under debris, emerging after twilight, when the light drops to about 0.1 lux, to clamber up plant stems and glow, to attract the smaller winged males. Once mated, the females extinguish their light, lay 50 to 150 small, spherical, faintly luminous eggs, and die. Their adult lives are short and made of light, but in their two years as larvae, they are creatures of macabre darkness, using their proboscis to inject snails with paralyzing, dissolving neurotoxins before sucking them up like soup. From the essay, In Spite of Prisons, for Vesper Flights. I'm going to move on to, not a quick fire round, but um, um, maybe slightly lighter questions, I suppose. Um, first of all, I'm just going to ask what your favourite part of Britain is. That's an incredibly unfair question. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I have lots of favourite parts. I mean, to be honest, this is going to sound like I'm just sort of, you know, big upping the local posse, but I really like where I live. I live in a, a really strange part of Suffolk between Bury St Edmunds and Sudbury, and it's it's really quite hilly, and it's like sort of the last bits of the Chiltern Hills before they bury it, they get, the chalk gets buried underground. It's, it's very high up. It's almost 240 feet. And um, it's quite unknown. The, the, people don't really visit here. And the light here is astonishing. And I have skylarks out the back of the... I've got this tiny garden that backs onto a barley field. And, you know, being here through the privations and, you know, of lockdown has been such a privilege. I, I, I love this place. And so I think Suffolk, I, pro- I probably... If I had to... If you really, you know, forced me to say something, I think I'd say Suffolk. That Good wasn't choice. a quick answer, was it? Sorry. No, no, that, sorry, it doesn't have to be a quick answer. I just mean the questions are, are, are yeah. not quite as ambling as some of my, my earlier ones. <laughs> um, and what kind of countryside would you like to see in an ideal world? In, a, in an ideal world, I would like to see a countryside, well, rather than a landscape, a kind of countryside, I'd like to see a countryside with more in it. Um, I am of a certain age, um, you know, we've lost 300, over 300 million birds from Europe since I was uh, born. And I'm old enough to remember vast, sinuous flocks of lapwings. I'm old enough to remember flocks of turtle doves, um, enormous numbers of finches feeding on winter stubble. You know, I just want the countryside to have life back in it that is no longer there. So it doesn't really matter what kind of countryside it is. I just want it to be healthier. I think that's my answer. Yeah. Absolutely. And when you're out in the countryside, what's your favourite outdoor pastime? Oh, that's a good question. I, mean, I guess walking around looking at things. <laughs> that's really terribly boring. Um, and of course, I've got my binoculars with me and I'm always looking for birds and, um, you know, sort of avoiding people because they might want to talk to me. And I'm, I'm a bit of a, you know, I do, I do quite like to be on my own when I'm walking and, you know, trying to work out what I should be doing and, you know, in my work and personal life is quite a good space to do that. But yeah, just looking. I think just looking and living in the moment. I think what countryside walks do for me is just let me experience now rather than constantly worrying about the past or the future, really. I think you're in good company there, actually. And interesting that you prefer to walk alone because it does give you that headspace and the the calm that comes with walking as well. So Vespa Flights is out this August. Would you mind telling us a bit about it? Yeah, I'm really excited about this book. I... I, um... It's a collection of essays. And I I always hated the word essay because I was this terrible student at school. I never used to do my homework on time and I was always in trouble. And then I sort of realised later on when I sort of started to properly read 
essays that weren't school essays, that they do things that longer pieces of writing really can't. They're like these concentrated, fierce exercises in attention and and wonder. And um, so it's a collection and it ranges in subject from, in subjects are really various. There's, um, there are essays on deer collisions, on migraines, on climbing the Empire State Building to watch birds. There's an essay on um, Swift's um, there's a lot on Swifts, actually. Glowworms. There's all sorts of things in there. But um, as I assembled it, I began to realise that there were themes in the book that that sort of kept coming up. And um, I think there are themes, I hope, that speak quite clearly to this historical moment. They're themes about belonging and about love and about hope and about where we are now. It's a, it's a much more political book than Ages for Hawk. I hope not in a kind of, you know, bashing one over the head kind of way, but I do try and think quite carefully about where we go from here and where we are now. My last question is our is a little bit sillier, but it's what I often like to ask people. If you were a British wild animal, what would you be? Oh, oh, wow. This is a really unexpected one, actually. Um, people often think that if I was a, an animal, I'd be a bird. And I think that's fairly sound, uh, sound intuition. Um, it's always been birds for me since I was a kid. And um, but people always think I'd be like a hawk or something because of my, you know, bird of prey connection. And oddly enough, if I was a bird, I think I'd be a cormorant. I just think they're so cool. I mean, they're kind of people kind of hate them. Um, They're really oddly beautiful up close. Um, They have this amazing heraldic stance when they're drawing their wings and they're equally as home in the water as they are in the air. And um, and I, I kind of love them. I just got a tattoo, actually. So, and I was thinking, you know, once you get one tattoo, you, you want more. And I was thinking, I think I might get a cormorant. So watch this space. Thank you very much for speaking to us today, Helen. It's been lovely. I've really enjoyed it. And your answers have been wonderfully thoughtful. And I just wish we had more time to talk for a lot longer about nature and life and the universe. Thank you. And um, all the best with the new book. Thank you. It's been a complete joy. Thanks so much. There's something so warm and generous in Helen's voice, and that certainly comes across in her writing. Thank you to Hannah Tribe for the readings from H's for Hawk and Vesper Flights, and of course to Helen MacDonald and Maria Hodson for the fantastic interview. Vesper Flights is published by Jonathan Cape, which is an imprint of Penguin Books. If you've enjoyed the podcast, do leave feedback and ratings on whatever podcast provider you use, and you can email me, Fergus Collins. I'm the host of the podcast and the editor of BBC Country Farm magazine. My address is editor at countryfile.com. And don't forget to tune in next week for Breakfast in the Black Mountains and the Brecon Beacons and a discussion about some of the big issues facing the countryside with a supporting cast of ravens, crossbills and labradors. Please do tune in. The podcast, the BBC Countryfile magazine podcast, was produced in Bristol by Jack Bateman. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>